0: Yeah, Heavenly Father, we really need this. Your children are gathered here this week. Some of us are expectant and excited. Some of us are tired. Some of us are on the verge of tears. Some of us are feeling more apathetic, even bored. But we need this. We need Jesus to enter the room right now, clothed in your scripture, so we can see him, so we can hear him, so we can love him, and that we can be your faithful people. And if you don't show up now, then there's no hope of us getting through another week, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, you know I got some notes and some time I've spent studying, but everything I'm going to say is going to be dry and dead unless you show up right now and do what you so often do and point us to Jesus. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jake, one of your pastors, and today we're actually going to be finishing up our sermon series on the kings and wrapping up the book of Samuel that's been in two parts. And do you guys remember how the story began? Um, it, It started off with God's people Israel demanding a king. A king just like all the other nations, and God responded to them without many warnings by giving them a king. He gives them Saul. And so for a split second, you see something that Israel actually does need, which is a king that defends them from their enemies. But pretty quickly, we watch Saul become a king just like the other nations, like they asked, meaning he leads the people into disobeying God's law. He leads them into disregarding worship and sacrifice. If you remember that crazy story where like, people are like, eating the blood of animals because they're so hungry, and Saul is leading them in this. And we get the vibe pretty quickly of the whole story of Samuel, which is that Israel needs a king, but they need a better king. So then we get David, which is the king after God's own hearts, and he conquers the enemies so well that Goliath, who nobody could defeat, David defeats, and then we see him lead the people in worship as he dances before the ark, and he leads everyone into connection before the presence of God, and then we see his heart of obedience. He hears God's voice, and he obeys him, and as it continues to go on, we get A clearer and clearer picture that the book is not really about the kings. It's about God's people needing a king and God's faithfulness to give him a king. So then you continue with David and you see his stumbling. It's brutally honest with how not really the perfect king that he is. But then, you know, it starts to pick up and we hear how he begins to unify the nation, a lot of good things. How would you imagine that this story ends? How would you imagine that the book of Samuel finishes up? Maybe David finally gets his act together and the people of God find rest from their enemies. That's kind of how I would imagine that it would end. And so I jumped into the very last chapter of 2 Samuel uh, and I read it, and it goes, again, the anger of the Lord burns against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So here's how the story of that last chapter goes, just in summary. God's angry, David takes a census, then God pours out his judgment, killing 70,000 people, and then David wakes up to it, offers a sacrifice, the plague stops, the end. It's not really the ending that I expected. I mean, we've seen some like bizarre things within the book of Samuel, but it just kind of feels clunky. And so here's what I did. I I was like, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I emailed one of the theological leaders who came out and taught all of the pastors of redemption over Samuel before we started the passage. I was like, this doesn't make sense. How do you make sense of this? Help me. And he emails me back and he goes, hey, Jake, thanks for reaching out. Hey, man, I have no idea without diving a little bit deeper into that passage. You really drew the short end of the straw. Best of luck, praying for you. (laughs) I have the email. I could prove it. And if you're hearing this... (laughs) Um, you made a good illustration for my story, so it's okay. Um, so then here's, here's what I did. I started, I I figure when, when the Bible gets really weird, just good tip too. If the Bible gets weird, then probably we're not understanding it in light of the greater story, right? So I feel like I was getting caught like up with looking at a leaf and probably needed to climb a tree and look at the forest, so I reached out to one of my theological uh, fathers, Mike Goheen, was like, hey man, you know the story stuff, help me, come on over. We sit down, his wife Marnie makes us some, some coffee and some, some uh, I was gonna say biscuits, but I'm not English, cookies cookies is the word. So we sit down, we're eating cookies, drinking, and he goes, Jake, what's the last thing you guys preached on? And I was like, well, you know, Warren was preaching on David and Absalom and kind of wrapping up, and we ended it like 1920, and he goes, that's the best thing that could have ever happened to you. I was like, oh, okay. He says, take a look at the last couple of chapters 21 through 24 of 2 Samuel. So I look at it, and he's like, do you notice anything about how weird that is? I was like, yeah. If you go through it, it's like a weird story, a list of like military conquests, some random poems, another military list, and then the last story that we're in, and then it's over. And he goes, there are two options. Either the author of Samuel ends the book with a bunch of disconnected random stories that he just didn't have room for, or it's a chiasm, And I was like, ooh, chiasm, what's that mean? (laughs) And so he sits and breaks it down for me, and he goes, he's like, how, it was really common back in the day, a literary chiasm goes like, one story at the beginning, one at the end, they mirror each other. One story in, another at the other end, they mirror each other. One story in, the other, and the center is the point, so it's not, the, the stories aren't the point. The, the core, the guts of the center is the point. So there we go. So he starts breaking it down for me. He's like, look, both stories, including the one that we were gonna jump into, sin, God's judgment, and then God restores the people through the king. Then you get a military fi- victory at the first end, military victory at the second end. Poem of God's faithfulness, poem, and then the center is the whole point, not just of this passage, but I believe the entire book of, second, of first and second Samuel. And so I'm hearing this, and I'm like, man, that's amazing. That helps unlock the meaning of it. But, man, I was coming to you with trouble preaching on one passage, and you want me to preach six? And I was like, you know, minus a couple of the few Bible nerds, when I say chiasm, most people are going to be like, excuse me, what? And then it clicked, in and out Burger. in and out Burger. Think about it. Okay? You've got two buns you got condiments from a layer in. You got the lettuce, you got the tomato, you got the cheese, grilled onions, if you know what you're doing. But why do you eat an In-N-Out burger? The patty, thank you. People will be eating an In-N-Out burger. The patty, I mean, you could, you could technically uh, dress it up and get lettuce for your wrap. Still, it's about the patty, no matter what. That's what you're going for, to eat In-N-Out burger. That is what a chiasm is like. It's dressing to point you to the juicy center. That's the patty. And so now the last chapter of second Samuel 24, this crazy story of God's judgment starts clicking and making a lot more sense because it's supposed to point inward at the center, the whole point of all of it, the patty. Okay, Jake, I'm tracking the center is the most important part. So what you're saying is that's what we're trying to get at, not just the stories. What's the patty, Jake? Hold up. I can't just toss a patty into your lap. There's a point to have the bun and the lettuce and the cheese and the things to get to that juicy center. You can't just, you can't go to, I mean, you could, but you'd be like an insane person if you just rolled up and you're like, I just want a patty. No box, no wrapper, just put it in my hands and I'll drive away. So what's the wrapper? Well, read the stories in the beginning and end of the entire book of Samuel. You begin with the very last bits of Judges. And Judges tells a horrifying story. It begins with God's plan for healing our broken world. The chosen people of God, Israel, they're gonna be a light to the nations. It's gonna be so good, so beautiful that all the nations around ancient Israel are gonna be like, man, I gotta to get to know who your God is. And then you follow judges and you get to the very end and the people of God are committing genocide against their own people, child sacrifice, idol worship, mass rape of entire villages and racial extermination. And the book of Judges ends with these words, in those days there was no king in Israel. So the ending is, we need a king. If the people of God are going to be able to be who they're supposed to be, they need a king. So we begin the book of Samuel. And we follow that story, and what we pick up pretty quickly within Samuel is what a king was meant to do. A king was meant to defeat God's enemies, the people of God's enemies. He was meant to lead them in worship and sacrifice, and the king was meant to lead them in obedience to the law. Remember Saul's story? Why he's such a problem? He was the king who defeated the people of God's enemies, but then he led everybody in disobedience, and he disregarded the worship and sacrifice system entirely. So then the rest of the book of Samuel is this downward spiral of Saul until we get to the rise slowly of David. He's the man after God's own heart because he does these things. He defeats God's people, the people of God's enemies. He leads them in right worship and sacrifice, and he obeys the law to a point. Because, again, the book of Samuel is not about the kings. It's about the faithfulness of God. To give them the king they need. Now, when you get to the other side of the wrapper, you get the book of Kings, which we're not going to get into, but here's how the story goes. 39 kings of Israel and Judah, guess how many are good? Three. And it ends with disaster and exile. So that's the wrapper around the In-N-Out burger, right? That's like the thing that you hold so you don't just get the grease all over you. So we got the wrapper. So Jake, what's the patty? Hold up. There's a point for the buns. Okay. On the outside, why do you want to put the buns up there? You got sin, judgment, God restores. Sin, judgment, God restores. So on the first end, you got this story about the Gibeonites. In 2 Samuel 21, it says, The Lord said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So what happened was suddenly there's a plague in the land and David is going, what is going on? So he prays, this is how God responds. Literally the one time that Israel functioned how they should have, another nation comes and gets absorbed into the people of God in this beautiful moment. They actually trick Israel. But then the story of Saul is that he goes on this extermination campaign against this people. So then God brings out judgment, makes sense. They're not acting as they should, but then David ends up putting to death the last family members of Saul and the plague stops. So you got the story of communal sin of the people, judgment, God's faithfulness to restore. Then on the other side, the other bun, the story we are supposed to jump into, David wakes up one morning and he goes, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a census of the entire military people of God, not a problem in itself. But he goes, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab, who we've heard a lot about before, normally is pretty trigger happy, right? He goes, whoa, 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 David, you can't do this. Because what he notices is that David wants to take a census for his own military might and campaign. But there's no mention of what you're supposed to do in Israel, which is every time you take a census, every single man you count must give an offering to the Lord to remind the entire people of God You don't belong to the king. You belong to Yahweh. No mention of that. They take the census, and then it makes sense. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and in fact, this looks just like God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. He just gives the people, David, the king, to become exactly what they want, a king like all the other nations, a military commander who would draft people. So, 2 Samuel 24 and 15, and why don't you put all those passages up there? It goes, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. That gets David's attention. He realizes how much he's failed as a king, and he says, behold, I have sinned. I've done wickedly what but these sheep, what have they done? It's an interesting thing. David notices that his failure is tied to the people's failure, but they're getting punished as one. So then God gives them the options of what they are to actually receive as a punishment. David can choose them. And David responds, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David knows his failure in this story. He knows he's leading him down a horrible path. And he knows the only hope is God's mercy and his faithfulness to his covenant. Again, the bonds are pointing inward towards the point. So, in God's mercy, he holds back. He doesn't even give them the fullness of the plague. He just stops after one day and then he tells David, Go offer a sacrifice. David does it. He restores the kingdom. He ends it. Both stories, sin of the king and the people are tied together, God's judgment, and then he deals with their sin by restoring them through sacrifice. So, those are the buns. But anytime I get into one of these passages where it is like brutal, like God killed 70,000 people, I always am like, why is God that intense with his people? And one day in one of my classes, I asked one of our seminary professors, I was like, hey, why is God so intense with punishing Israel? And he stopped what he was doing. He has this accent I'm not going to try to like mimic, but he stops, he looks down, and then he looks up at the class and he goes... Because with Israel, the world is at stake. So judgment makes a lot of sense. And it also illustrates, why do these stories matter to you? We're not Jewish. We don't have a king. Why do they matter? Because in the story of Israel, if you're following it along, if Israel fails... The hope of the story of God redeeming the whole world dies right there. You never get to see the light of hope if they can't figure it out. The, the restoration you've experienced within your marriage, gone. There is no message of salvation to the nations the forgiveness you've experienced for your past and shame, the collective joy of the people of God being united together. If Israel cannot figure it out, the story dies, it's over. There is no hope. So when we are reading the stories of Israel and we're reading the stories of the kings, if you're not holding your breath, you're not reading it right. Because if they fail, that's it. There's no backup plan for God. Jesus was not the backup plan and Israel was the plan A that failed. If Israel, as the chosen people of God, cannot ultimately figure it out, if God can't somehow redeem their history, then we have no history. So as we read these stories, it makes a lot of sense why judgment is so severe beginning with the people of God. Because the world's at stake. You're at stake. All the nations are at stake. Every single one of us who have ever tasted the joy of the church, the light of Jesus, that's at stake. And that's where the second story begins to shine. David can't take the people's sin on. He's got his own sin to deal with. And do you notice in that story, God gives him three options of judgment. The only one he doesn't want is the one that ends up putting it on him. And so God gives them that. And so what you see in these stories, both of them, is that the people need a better king. Israel, you need a king who's so obedient to God's will that he doesn't sin himself. Who could be a king like that? Oh, Israel, you needed a king who was not just a king, but a priest. A king who could write on the hearts of all God's people the laws of obedience so that they responded to God without even thinking. Samuel is the story and the author is writing. Who could be a king like that? Gosh, I don't know. But as we work towards the center of this, the point is gonna get to that. So in the next part you get, right, buns? Condiments. Throw it up there. So you got two stories of military conquest, which are kind of weird because they're just like appendixes. The first one is, here's all the conquering victories of the Philistines. You want to put the verses up there that I put? There's the next slide. Yeah, it's like the war against the Philistines. And then on the other end, it's the names of the mighty men that David had and their military-like victories and exploits. It just seems like out of nowhere. Why? You got the stories of judgment, God's faithfulness to restore, and then right in from there, you have the military victories of the king and his men. It's because before we even get to that center, what the point is, that patty, that juicy, like, why we all drive to in and out Burger, the whole thing is getting there. We got to see that a huge part of the king was the victory over God's enemies, The only way that the people of God are gonna have victory from their enemies and not just get sucked into idolatry and enslaved by oppressive powers is if they have a king who is mighty like David, but even better. And here's the crazy part about these two passages. When this book was compiled, at the very least, they've all seen the shattering of all the kings, but most likely they are reading, and compiling these stories in exile. They have no king. No king, and they've gotten so beaten that Jerusalem is burnt to a crisp and their entire nation's in captivity and scattered across the globe. And they're meditating on stories of military victory by their king? Why? Doesn't that seem a little bit ridiculous? But it would continue to foster in their mind that God's people need a king to deliver them from their enemies. And maybe because as they sat in exile, they began to realize that the real enemy is not another nation. The real enemy is sin, idolatry, the powers that tie up not just them, but all the nations into these systems of brokenness and evil. Maybe they begin to see that they need a king who could destroy the true enemies of God's people. And if God was faithful to give a king back then for military conquest, then he doesn't change. He'll be faithful to give a king someday who is even better than David. How could they hope for that? How could they trust in that? How could the people of God, when everything around their lives was burning and crumbling and it doesn't look like in the world that you live in that things are put together and that God is winning, how could they have hope that God would give them the king that they need? Now you're ready for the patty. The very center is two poems about God's faithfulness, and right smack dab in the middle is this verse. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Salvation is tied to the king. God will bring his people a king and he will be the heart of salvation. How could the people hope? How could the people of God have trust that God was going to give them that king even though it didn't even make sense? Like, how would you have a king that was perfect? How would you have a king who could conquer not just military battles, but actually the demonic powers that influence the world and even our own sin? How could you trust that God would be able to do that? Put that verse back up on there. It is because his steadfast love. That is the center. That God would someday bring a king who could show his steadfast love his faithfulness to his promise for all creation and for the whole world. And here's something that's really cool about this verse right here that we that we kind of miss a little bit, unless you can open it up and, and dice it up a little bit. It says, Great salvation he brings to the king. In Hebrew, that's literally three words: great salvation, his king. And the word for salvation in Hebrew is the exact same root word for the name, the Hebrew name Joshua which might at first be lost a little bit on some of us, but that is the name of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago who was born of a virgin. In English, we call his name Jesus. How can God's people trust that they will have a good enough king because of his faithfulness to his covenant? That king... He's going to be better than David, better than Saul, better than any human king. He will be God's presence with us. That's the patty. That's the center of the whole book of Samuel. The people of God need a king. They always do. They need a king that is way better than what we see in all of the Old Testament. And the only hope that Samuel, who wrote this, could have ever had was that God would be faithful to do, would would it make sense otherwise? That his covenant faithfulness to his people, his world, would actually bring it about. I want you to imagine a little boy named Matthew. One day he comes home crying because he tried to come straight home from synagogue, but the Romans that were living in the land began to harass him and attack him. And so he runs home to his mom, and he's got tears streaming down his face. He's scruffed up on his knees and his elbows from trying to run away fast enough. And he's crying to his mom about how ugly and terrified this was And his mom begins to tell him the stories of David of his mighty warriors who vanquished the people of God's enemies. There wasn't a single enemy that could stand against David and his mighty men. And she begins to tell these elaborate details to her little boy. And as he's listening, he begins to take comfort because God, through his king, rescued his people. And so his tears begin to get wiped away. He begins to have hope. And she says, someday, baby, God's going to give us a new king. Someday, he's going to be king more mighty than all of David's mighty men. Someday, baby, God's faithfulness is going to give us a king who will lead Israel back into the obedience that brought us into exile. And he is going to redeem us and rescue us. That king is going to bring in the whole world so that even our enemies see and begin to rejoice and worship our God, baby, someday we're going to have a king like that. But Matthew grows up, and the harshness of life chews him up a bit. His hope as a little boy begins to dwindle and dies, and he figures if God isn't going to send anyone to help, might as well survive in enemy land as best as he can. So Matthew takes up tax collecting. Sure, the people of God around him, they kind of hate him for it. But why fight it? You got to survive the brutality of life, he thinks. And that's a fact. You need to be your own rescuer, he believes, because God has not sent one. And then one day, when Matthew is sitting at his tax booth, another Jewish man walks up to him, It's this guy from Nazareth that people have been talking about. It's like some backwater town, but he walks up to Matthew. He's like 30-something years old, about the same age as Matthew, and he tells Matthew, follow me. Matthew has no idea why, but he gets up. He leaves everything, and he begins to follow this man. And as he begins to watch this man and see, he sees like these moments where he he begins to remember things. He sees Jesus as the one who taught the people to obedience to the law like no one ever had before, a deeper obedience that was rooted in love, love of God. Love of one another. And and so Matthew is watching Jesus in his teaching, and he's like, I don't, I don't remember where is this from? This seems so familiar to me. And so he keeps walking, and maybe he's jotting things down in his journal, and he's like, I don't get it, but he keeps watching him. And then one night after he had seen Jesus do so many miracles and so many amazing things, he sits down at this Passover dinner. And he sees Jesus take a piece of bread, and he sees Jesus take some wine, and he says, This is my body given in sacrifice for you. This is my blood shed for you. And then Matthew's like, wait, did he just call himself the sacrifice? And then they take him away. And again, the tears come for Matthew because he thought that he was everything. And he's horrified, but also confused because when they string him up on the cross, Matthew's watching Jesus, they put a crown on his head, and they wrote above his head, King of the Jews. And Matthew feels sick to his stomach, but then. He comes again, he rises from the grave. He comes to his disciples and he begins to eat with them and he shows them the scars in his hand and he shows that he conquered even death. And Matthew's a little bit confused along with the other disciples, but amazed and in tears and happy and so excited about it. And as Jesus is talking to them, that's when the words of his mother come back into his mind. One day, baby boy, God will give us a king who will be better than any king that ever has come. And you know what Matthew did? He fell on his face and he worshiped Jesus. Now it makes sense why the first words of the New Testament are Matthew's genealogy. He's going crazy and he's like, you've got to understand that Jesus is the true king, the real son of David. David. I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes for a second. I'm gonna invite the band on the stage whenever they're ready. and I want you to put yourself in Matthew's place and I want you to imagine you're sitting at the table at that final supper as Jesus begins to talk about his own body given, his own body sacrificed and remember how David had a chance to sacrifice himself, but he didn't. And now I want you to invite the Holy Spirit just to speak to you in this moment. Just to speak for a moment into what it might look like for you to see Jesus as that king. And now I'm gonna pray for all of you as you sit here and then leave us with some time in silence. God, I want us to see Jesus today clothed in scripture, something only your Holy Spirit can do. And so now I invite you into the silence to speak to every one of your children. The next thing that we're going to do, Jesus, as we worship is we're going to sit and we're going to eat with the king. We're going to do what Matthew did and we're going to remember that this true king that has been gifted to us is because of the faithfulness of you, God. So minister to us in this time. Speak to all your children what we need to hear and see. Amen. Amen.